Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, I am very excited about our guest today. It is Eric Braden, better known to Young and Restless fans as Victor Newman for the past 41 years. And I believe in the three decades that I have been here, I have never had the chance to interview him. Now, I know you have and have shared some delightful accounts with me, but the fact that I have never had a one-on-one is funny to me in that he is by far the actor I am asked about the most. So if I meet someone new and they ask what I do, it's fair to say that the next question will be, do you know Victor Newman? <laughs> and I have to say that my interaction with him has been brief, but after today, that will change. Yeah. Yes, and I am so excited for the conversation we are poised to have. Uh, the first time I interviewed Eric was when he wrote his amazing autobiography, I'll Be Damned, which I basically read in one sitting because his life story is truly fascinating. And, you know, I've been at the magazine a long time. I've had intimidating moments, like the first time I sat down with Susan Lucci or the first time I sat down with Jeannie Francis. When you're uh, face-to-face or ear-to-ear in the case of a phone interview, with a true legend of the industry like they are. Even if you're experienced, it can kind of get in your head a little bit and you just hope that you don't make a fool of yourself and that you come across as professional and able to carry on an intelligent conversation. But I remember waiting for my phone to ring at the appointed time with Eric Braden at the other end of that call. It was a little after hours, so I was the only one left in the office and I started to feel a little nervous but he could not have been warmer or more charming. And we kind of clicked and he asked questions about me and all in all, it was just such a satisfying interview. And then I think it was on my last trip out to LA for the daytime Emmys that I was invited to interview him in person. And we sat in his dressing room for hours talking. Uh, And his granddaughter is an equestrian as is my sister. So some of our conversation was not even about soaps, it was about horses. And then I left CBS and went to the shopping complex next door to meet Wally Kurth for coffee. It was like a day that my 13-year-old self would not have even imagined in my wildest dreams. (laughs) But there's a very short list of people that I think um, have had so much success in their daytime role that their name, or if not their name, their face, is known far and wide, even by people who don't watch soaps. And Eric Braden is definitely part of that very exclusive club. He is an absolute icon, and it never fails to amaze me that he was only supposed to be on the show for a limited time, like a matter of months, and then Victor was supposed to be killed off. 
But needless to say, his portrayal was so compelling that the show had no choice but to scrap those plans. And thank goodness for that, because the character has been at the center of so many important storylines and moments over the years. And it's next to, uh, next to impossible to imagine what YNR would look like without him. I mean, it really is. He is so linked to what everyone sees in their mind's eye, I imagine, when you hear Young and Restless. As to your point, Susan Lucci is to all my children. So I remember the first time I interviewed her, it was in her dressing room. It was in the mid-90s, which is funny to think about even interviewing actors in their dressing room after the past year. But there's definitely an intimidation factor and for me at that point, I had maybe been at the magazine for four or five years or so, so I was definitely on edge. But she was so lovely and gracious. I mean, really, as they all are, I've had maybe a handful of experiences over the course of three decades where an actor hasn't been, I don't know, warm or welcoming or maybe how I imagine them to be. But ultimately, that is part of the job. And in a way, it actually helps to get over that nervousness when you have a bad experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, when we had Roger Howarth on the podcast on the occasion of Franco's death on GH back in March, uh, you two mentioned that you hadn't seen each other since he was on The Chew, which was back in 2013. That day, uh, a bunch of actors from GH were in New York for a network event, and they taped The Chew. And then after, ABC hosted sort of like a mini press junket with all of the talent from the show. And you and I were both there. But Roger Howard sort of infamously did not do press for many years. And his last big interview in Soap Opera Digest prior to that day was in 1995. Wow. And I was the first reporter scheduled to talk to him that day. So you best believe that my thought bubble was, what if you say something that makes him not want to do press again for another 18 years? <laughs> I was for sure nervous. But one of the lessons I feel like I've learned on the job is that if I'm comfortable, it'll make the actor comfortable. And if I'm friendly, the actor is more likely to be friendly. And sometimes there's like a little fake it till you make it, where at first I'm only pretending to be at ease on the phone with an Eric Braden. But then, you know, the next time I'm on the phone with Eric Braden, I really am at ease. You know what I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And we've definitely both had to deal with that over the years in between the many pinch me moments I'm sure we've both had. But it's funny because the one thing I do remember from that day at the Chew was that Roger was like super comfortable. So it had been a while since definitely we had seen each other, but I feel like he went right back into, uh, you know, interview mode. And yeah. thankfully you did nothing to turn him off that day from doing them in the future. <laughs> um, but without further ado, let's get Eric on the line to chat. Hi, Eric. How do you do? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, Eric, so as a lot of fans know from reading your incredible memoir, I'll Be Damned, you never really had ambitions to be an actor and kind of fell into the profession by accident. So for people who don't know how that happened, can you share the story of how your career as an actor began? Well, now, that is what you said in the preface is true and not true. Uh, there was no conscious... Uh, desire to be an actor, although I sort of flirted with the idea uh, after seeing some films. And uh, my mother watched Gone with the Wind 13 times. And Clark Gable sort of looked like my father, and I thought, hmm. And then I remember seeing Marlon Brando in, in Mark Anthony. Friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Anyway, that was Marlon, and as school kids, we had to watch that film, Julius Caesar, and I became more and more interested in, in, I found myself 
pretending to be some actors. And the famous German play with a bad guy intrigued me, and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. I had a very tortured soul, if you will, because my father died when I was 12. I was born during the war, grew up after the war. So, you know, you ask a lot of fundamental questions, existential questions, that no one, by the way, has ever fucking answered. Okay? I remember I grew up as a Protestant and we had to go to catechism class and all that. It's a nuisance, but we did. And, um, but I remember asking serious questions of, of a local pastor and whatever mumbo jumbo he gave you. And it, none of that was satisfying. So I postponed at the very young age the notion of asking fundamental questions. I still have not gotten to the age where I want to do that because so far no one has found a good answer. The only good thing is meditation. Meditating is very good, calms you down. Beyond that, it still is, in Shakespeare's words, the undiscovered country from which born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. Isn't that beautifully said? Yes. Shakespeare yeah. is arguably the greatest genius, I think, mm -hmm. certainly in the written word. Agreed. Anyway, so then in high school, I was always asked to read poetry aloud. And to we were graded in, 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 in German high schools by how well we read a text aloud. If it was with meaning, etc., you got a corresponding grade. So it's not that I wasn't exposed to it. And then I was always asked to recite poetry, for example, at certain commemorations in school. So I was sort of, you know, had put my toe into the water a little bit. And then when I was at the University of Montana, they asked me, I don't know why, if I wanted to read for Chekhov's The Cherry Orchard. And I said, yeah, why not? And they liked it. And they said, could you do it? I, I couldn't because I was working from six to two in the morning in a lumber mill. And then my lecture, first lecture was at eight in the morning. Then I had track and field practice afterwards. So I had no time. But so the, there were forays into it a little bit. So then I did a river trip in Idaho on the river of no return. I was the first one with an American guy to ever go up and down the rapids of the Salmon River, the river of no return. And we made a documentary film. And with that, we came to California, to Los Angeles, where the PR company for Johnson Motors and Alco Aluminum, who had sponsored our trip, given us the boat and the money for the film, had a press conference on Catalina Island. And my first trip came here with Greyhound bus from Montana all the way down to Los Angeles. And two days later, we took a boat to Catalina Island and a press conference, and we showed the film. And some people came up to me and said, have you ever thought of being an actor? I said, no, not really. And then the PR guy showed that film to Ed Warner Brothers. Sally Bayano is one of the oldest casting directors in town, doesn't live anymore, but he cast all the big names of Warner Brothers. He saw the film, he says, Oh, you should think about being an actor. I had no idea what he meant, what this entailed. And then I worked parking cars later on 
and then afterwards worked for Beacon's Moving Furniture. And some another young guy said, hey, you know, they need a lot of young actors on, on these films about the Second World War. They make good money. I said, oh, huh. So I went to an agency, pretended to have acted before in Germany, which I had not, <laughs> and they hired me, sent me out to my first interview in a dreadful film called Operation Eichmann. They had just caught Adolf Eichmann in Argentina, and I had to play henchman. I did my first interview. First time I ever saw a script, I didn't know what the hell I meant. Blue pages, yellow pages, you know, uh, revisions, etc. I got the part, and I kept on getting parts after that, one after the other. Because I would never take no for an answer. I said, well, if this part isn't right for me, there's another part I read about, that would be good for me. And lo and behold, it worked. So anyway, go on. I could go on forever. <laughs> well, it's it's really an incredible story. Uh, and you really had such an interesting and varied acting portfolio before you joined The Young and the Restless. And mm -hmm. even since uh, joining The Young and the Restless, your role in Titanic comes to mind post YNR. Is there a role or a project that stands out for you as having been particularly fun or that you are particularly proud of? It's a very good question. You know, in the end, when I go back, I have to say that almost every job was important. And one of the most important jobs was the first guest starring role on a series called Combat, which we filmed at the old MGM studios. And the guy at the gate was called Ken Hollywood. The cop at the gate was called Ken Hollywood. Hey, Ken, how the hell are you? And <laughs> Ken Hollywood, isn't that something? And we've, anyway, so that was one of the most important roles. And then I guest starred on almost every show in town. But one of the most important parts was on Mission Impossible, where I kissed Barbara Bain, the first time she had been kissed on the show. <laughs> and I played a Russian spy who quoted Shakespeare. And that was seen on Broadway by George Schaefer. Mm then flew out to interview me for a role at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, 49th and Broadway, with Geraldine Page, one of the great ladies of the American theater and film, and Kurt Jürgens, who was one of the great German actors, and Clarence Williams III, who was on Mod Squad and played Prince's father in Purple Rain, etc. And he played my half-brother. Anyway, that was... So the one part always led to another. But the most important thing was, I think, that firmed the desire in me to become an actor was when I did open the Santa Monica Playhouse on 4th and Mercer. It still exists. And we did a one-act play by Tennessee Williams called The Lady of Larkspur Lotion. And I played a drunk writer. And that is really what was Epiphanist. And then right after that, I played the Prince of Wales in a play by the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre called Le Mersal, Dirty Hands. And I almost did that. No, excuse me, Keen, 
It's not true. It's a play called Keen, in which I played the Prince of Wales. Then after that, Tally Sabalas and I were asked to play Dirty Hands. And he couldn't make it. Anyway, that's the Santa Monica Playhouse. That was very, very important to me because I licked blood. You know, when you play before the audience, you either pee in your pants or you succeed. And I come from the world of sports where you learn early on, now's the time to perform. You can't hide. It's not rehearsal anymore. You perform. And I'd won the German Youth Championship in track and field. So I was used to pressure. There you go. Wow. Well, I remember from your book that it was the great Dabney Coleman who made you reconsider dismissing the idea of working on a soap. So can you tell us what he said? And in general, what do you remember about getting the job on Y&R back in 1980? Well, I didn't know what a soap was. I just finished uh, The Planet of the Apes, the third one, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. And um, the producer had a party. And I never go to directors or producers' parties. Never have, never will. Because I always think actors will go there to be discovered, and I don't give a damn. I'm too arrogant for that shit. So you either hire me from a casting session, or you don't. So Arthur Jacobs was the producer, and his wife, Natalie Jacobs, and they insisted that I come. I said, I'm not going to do it. They said, well, we have a ping pong tournament. Will you come now? I said, yes. Anything to do. <laughs> so at the, at the tournament were Walter Matthau, Dick Zanuck, various other Illuminati, and I made it to the final in the ping pong tournament. And then he says, well, will you stay tonight for the party? I said, okay, reluctantly. <laughs> At that party, someone approached me and said, have you ever thought of doing a soap? What's, I said, what's a soap? Well, as you know, uh, why don't you come out to NBC and, and take a look? Meanwhile, I played tennis a lot with Dabney Coleman. And we noticed to me, Dabney was doing a soap then at NBC. I forget the name of it. So they showed me around, and I'd done a lot of nighttime by this time in film. And I remember Dabney saw me being led by the head of daytime at NBC through the stages. And he, Dabney, in his acerbic way, says, the hell are you doing here? Are you slumming? Are you slumming? I said, hey, man. Well, long story short, years later, it came up. My agency approached me and said, look, they're interested in seeing you for a role on a soap called The Young and the Restless. I said, I don't know what a soap is. And I've never heard of it. And I watch daytime television. I have no clue. They watch TV during the day? Oh, yeah. I said, well, hmm. So I played tennis with Dabney that afternoon. I said, what do you think? He says, do it, do you love it? He wow. knew because he had done it. Upon that recommendation, did I even show up? Casting down here at CBS. Never have gone otherwise. Never. Didn't know what it was. So, yeah. And the rest is a 41-year-old history. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dabney Coleman. Um, now, from, yeah. from having been on the show as long as you have been on the show, you've been in the company of some incredible legends of this industry behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. What comes to mind when you think about the great William J. Bell and Lee Philip Bell? You know, what one realizes in hindsight is often more valuable than what you 
realize when you actually go through it. But I, in retrospect, begin to recognize and have for a while what a genius he was in this medium. Bill Bell was a genius. And his wife was by his side and suggested a lot of things. It's a wonderful lady, a wonderful lady, a lady. If I ever met someone who I would designate as a lady, Lee Philip Bell was that. And she had enormous input on storylines. She would insist on uh, contemporary social issues that we discussed on YNR long before it was discussed in the media, really. So Bill and I had initially a kind of a wait and see attitude towards each other um, until I wanted to leave the show after about a year. And I said, Bill, I've played bad guys for so long. I have nothing more to give. I'm tired. I don't want to do it anymore. So thank you very much, but I'm going to, going to leave. He says, well, what can we do? I said, if you were to ascribe a background to this character that humanizes him, then let's see. Shortly thereafter, Melody and I, Nikki, did a scene in which I talk about my childhood for the first time. I had been a mystery until then. And once I did that scene, I knew I would stay because it opened a whole plethora of storylines. And it was so touching and so deep-seated and so I identified with a lot of it because I'd lost my father early on, had seen too many people after the war who had become orphans, etc. So it, it touched a nerve in me. And again, I'm still drawing from that well. Mm -hmm. Victor has never trusted anyone really because of it. He wants to love, wants to be loved, but in the end he doesn't trust. Mm -hmm. He learned early on to defend himself, as I did in real life. And when your father dies at a young age, you fight almost every day to defend yourself. You become your own father, much too early, by the way. Um, now, what about Jean Cooper, who played Catherine? What do you think about when I say her name? Jeannie. <laughs> Jeannie. <laughs> yeah, I, I miss her. I really miss her body humor. I miss her. You know, I got to tell you a little secret. She, you know, had this rough voice, you know. And the first time we had to do a scene together, she came up to me and put her hands on my privates and said, all right, macho man, let's see what you've got. I said, whoa, 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 baby. Slow down, girl. <laughs> so we've had a humorous, we laughed all the time. She and I, I loved working with her. Loved it. We cursed all the time. I loved her. I loved her. She was just, she was a true character. Well, one of the, the really big treats that The Young and the Restless delivered to fans during the show's production hiatus last year was rerunning some wonderful, you know, vintage episodes, including the incredible and lavish first wedding of Nikki and Victor. 
Now, you told me the last time we talked that you caught a little bit of it the day that it aired, uh, but you didn't get to see the end, as I recall, because the, there was a preemption by the, by the governor's press conference. But do you have any specific memories of filming that, that day of work, which would turn out to be one of the favorite weddings in the history of daytime television? I thought when I read it, I said, oh, shit. He's going to take all day. <laughs> so, so all these minions running around and sewing and adjusting, and I said, oh, Jesus. So anyway, it turns, I love working with Melody, obviously. Love it. And uh, I could then quickly see, you know, the, the potential glamour of it and... And Bill Bell, at that time, they would spend a lot of money on the show. You know, those days are long gone. And they would not have a big wedding like that to save their ass. <laughs> so, um, yeah, in retrospect, it was wonderful. Doing it, it's a pain. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is. I mean, you, you wait all day, make the, get this shot right and that shot. It's interesting how you begin to, as an actor to categorize what you do, what everyone does on the show. You don't realize how hard it is for props, for wardrobe, for makeup, for, I mean, all these people work so hard. And then in the booth, everything has to be, as an actor, you just think of what you have to do. Rarely do you pull back and say, wait a minute, this is the overall view. There's a lot of work that has gone into this. And uh, that comes with age. But it also comes with having enough free time to muse about it all, to gain perspective, because we are burdened with learning so much that you need to concentrate just on what you do. You've almost no patience for the rest. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to do with uh, egocentricity. It has to do with the necessity of learning the shit, you know? Right. Well, there are very few love stories in daytime that have endured the way that Victor and Nikki have. Um, now, do you think they would have worked so well if someone other than Melody was playing Nikki and someone other than Eric was playing Victor? That's a very good question. And, and, and to be honest with you, I love working with her. She gets me. She gets me. Okay? I'm not always the easiest guy to work with. But she gets me. And... I'm from a man's world. I, I grew up with guys, I grew up with sports and all that, and it's, it's um, she understands that. When I, in the past, at one time or another, got pissed off about something by a director, by a tone on the set, where suddenly the director would put down an extra, or whatever, or they count down. When I first came, there's a disregard for what they do in soaps. Everyone working in soaps has a kind of second-class citizen attitude towards what they do. Because they think, they think, I know that what we do is harder than what you do at nighttime. Mm -hmm. They don't know that. 
Most people who work in soaps, most actors who work in soaps, think, oh, well, what, do you, what we do is not that important. They don't realize what we do in soaps is harder than anything, anytime they do at nighttime. Any day. I have been there. I'm the only one who's been there. Very few people have, as I have. So I have enormous respect for this medium. But what I had to teach these people here, and I'm saying this honestly, they used to have stage directors when we came who would count down with their earphones on, talking to the booth. They wouldn't even look at the actors. They'd say, all right, five, four, three, two, one, bored to tears. And I would simply stand there. That would matter. I said, you look at me. When I give you a sign, then we are ready. I don't give a whether the technical part is ready. When I'm ready, it's my ass on the line, my face on the screen, that's when we shoot. Is that clear? And I had to do that a few times. Now, obviously, when that happens, they say, oh my God, look at his temper. Well, I only did that when it was justified. Mm -hmm. And when I saw directors sometimes over the loudspeaker talk condescendingly to extras, I would go berserk. Mm -hmm. I would go to the booth and said, you Talk to that person one more time. I'm going to pull you out of that chair. Do you got that? Don't do that. Mm -hmm. We treat each other with respect. That's the essence. With mutual respect. That applies to everything in life. Mm -hmm. It applies to the whole cop, uh, Black Lives Matter issue. It applies to husband and wives. It ap applies to uh, the, the battle of the sexes. It's a question of mutual respect. Mm -hmm. I, as a man, don't talk, talk, don't talk down to a woman. A woman shouldn't don't, uh, talk down to me. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as it is. Right. The best director we ever had, I learned a lot from him, was called Wes Kinney. Mm -hmm. He produced some of the shows early on. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved that guy. He would come down to the set and go to actors who had not done so well in the scene, and he would... He took the wind right out of their sails. He said, I love what you did. Oh. Could you do me a favor and do it a little bit like this for me, just for me? I love what you did. We have that in the can. And they would feel great. Right. Instead of coming out, uh, uh, now let's do that again. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. It's so yeah. simple. And I taught my son that. My son is a writer and director. He wrote and directed Den of Thieves, that film that you see now. And I said, my boy, whatever you do, first of all, I want you to take acting lessons to know what that pressure is about. Most directors in Hollywood have no clue about what acting is about. The reason we are, we are called prima donna sometimes is because when you act, the moment they count down and say action, you stand there by yourself, you're naked. Boom. You know, they're all looking at you. And you fuck up, they all know. It's, it's, it's a very vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. That's where actors become funny sometimes mm -hmm. and or have temper tantrums or whatever because it's a very vulnerable position. I dare anyone to do it. Mm -hmm. See what you do. Anyway, Wes Kinney was wonderful. I loved him. He, he was one of the reasons I stayed, really. He came from nighttime. He had respect. In nighttime, they treat you with the utmost respect. Daytime, because the people in the upper echelon think what we do is shit. It's not important. Well, they don't realize 
which I didn't until I did my first public appearance. That's another thing that I'm grateful for to daytime. I always questioned in the 60s, why am I doing this show or that show or that show? Who cares? I wanted to do Ingmar Bergman films, Cosa Gavras films, um, Fellini, Truffaut. I said, why am I doing Gunsmoke or hmm. Mission Impossible, Hawaii Five-O? Began to bore the daylights out of me. And you become cynical. One of the great traps you fall into in Hollywood when you become famous is you become cynical. You say, what am I getting paid all this money for? To do what? What? On why and I learned the first time Doug Davidson and I went to Canada to do a public appearance. I said, what's a public appearance? Well, you know, where fans meet you, I said, fans of what? <laughs> I said, fans of the show? What, what are you talking about? So they picked us, flew to Toronto, picked us by limo, and took us out to some hotel in the outskirts of Toronto. Next morning, going to be ready at 12. I said, sure, big deal. What do we do? Well, you just show up on stage and, you know, answer questions that the audience will ask. I said, so I assumed about 30, 40 people. So the first sign I knew something was not quite right was when they took us by limo from the hotel to this huge mall, the biggest in North America, I think. And they didn't take us to the front of the mall. They took us to the back of the mall where all the trash cans are. And I said, what the f*** is this? <laughs> what, did I, what did I buy into? I looked at Dougie Davis and said, what are we doing? He said, I don't know. So they take us in and we're greeted by the managers of the mall and, and you know, some excited women with sweaty hands. And I thought, why are they so excited to meet us? What, what is this? So then the fire department was there. And after about 10, 15 minutes, said, are you ready? I said, yeah, we're ready for what? <laughs> so they said, okay, get ready. So they took us to a long hallway, a darkened hallway. And I see women on either side of the tunnel trying to grab us. I said, whoa, 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 <laughs> what is this? So as we come to the end of the tunnel, I see some light and I see this huge stage opening up. And suddenly they burst into, I mean, in, in, I've never, never experienced anything like it. It was a chorus of just, my God Almighty, it took my breath away. They had 15,000 people crammed into a very narrow space with a glass elevator in the middle where they're packed in like sardines going yeah, up and down. Going up and down. I was overwhelmed. We both were overwhelmed. And right close to the stage in the front were people in wheelchairs and, and, and people who were, uh, you know, on crutches, etc. And my heart goes out to them and you both, Doug and I went up and started shaking hands. Well, big mistake because they're pushing from the back to get to us as well. So we aborted that whole undertaking very quickly. I turned around to the main 
security guy and said, let's get out of here now, now. Because the stage was filling up. And he said, we can't because all the exits are now closed with people. I said, look, we hit, we fight, elbows, anything, get out of here now. Because I was truly afraid, we all were afraid, we would get trampled to death. It was that chaotic. And mm -hmm. the, the wheelchairs had been run over, lying down. They called ambulances to pick up a number of people from that first. So finally went back to the safe area. And I said, I will never do this again, ever. I didn't sign up for this. This is crazy. This is, this, this is nuts. I called my wife that night. I said, I'm off the show. I won't do this again. This is nuts. For what? Then they said, well, the next morning you have in your contract, you have to show up again. I said, only if you hire the local inmates of a prison as guards or the entire service department or a football team as guards. Not going to do this again. I said, or you raise the stage, and they did. The next day was very civilized, wonderful. People could only come so close. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, what it taught me is not to be cynical about our profession. It's about a very simple thing, not about a socially or politically valuable statement that can happen. It's about entertaining people. Mm -hmm. That's what we actors do. And that made me reconcile to the basic tenet of this business is to entertain. And nowhere do you realize that faster than in a soap, nowhere. So I've been eternally grateful to that ever since. And that is, other than the money, mm -hmm. other than the joy of working, is the raison d'etre for being in this. I can go anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Be it in Paris, be it in Tel Aviv, be it in Istanbul, be it, hello, Victor, oh. I mean, it's, it, I was at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. They were the camera behind me, and they said, what do you, I said, yeah, what do we do? He said, well, you, you know, Whatever you wish, you put on a piece of paper, put it in the wall. And I said, oh, yeah, how oh, interesting. So you become, in Jerusalem as it is, you become very, you become aware of the extraordinary importance of that city and what it has meant to all monotheistic religions. You, you become aware of it. It's, it's, it's in the air. It's strange. It almost gives you goosebumps. So I'm standing at the waiting wall, you know, and and thinking and thinking about all this goes through you, your mind like a computer. And suddenly next to me was an Orthodox guy standing there. Victor. Victor. <laughs> Victor. <laughs> it was sacrilegious. In the middle of them all standing there. Victor. Well, I went, shh, shh, shh. So then we walked up the Via de la Rosa, where Jesus supposedly carried the cross up the damn street. And all the shopkeepers came out, Victor, Victor. <laughs> That's incredible. So, <laughs> really in Palace, amongst the intellectually snobbish and arrogant French, <laughs> you know, they walk in the street, they don't look left or right. And suddenly, hello, Monsieur Newman. <laughs> Ça va? Oui, ça va bien. Et vous? Ah oui, hello, hello. They almost drop everything. So it's, it's so wonderful, you know, it's, it's so, 
is, is deep, deeply touching. Okay. Then you go to, uh, I mean, in, in Istanbul, we were invited by then President Chilla, was a lady, who invited us to a party at her residence, huge party. I've never seen so many security people in one place, machine guns and all that. And imagine that. Okay. And this is from a soap opera. Then walking through the streets of Istanbul, you see all these veiled ladies. And they sort of slow down as they approach. And they blush under, you can see the blush sort of under the, oh, Victor. <laughs> I mean, it is just extraordinary. And then you gain respect for what we do and you gain a sense of responsibility to do what we do well, mm -hmm. as well as you can, you know? Mm -hmm. And you don't become cynical anymore. There you are. Yeah. Um, well, there. Uh, just to bring it back to Melody for just one second, it's occurred to me because the love story has been told uh, over decades, you've been in a fictional relationship with her longer than a lot of people have been married in real life, which is pretty remarkable. We get each other. You know, we, we, we don't have to say much. We, we get it. Clearly, it translates to the to the audience. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we both have vulnerabilities because of both of our respective backgrounds, and and yeah, uh, we get each other. There's not not more to say about that. It's it's. I am very grateful to have a partner like that for all those years. You know, mm -hmm. and someone else I'm grateful to because I think that he and I are probably the, some of the bedrock of the show, that is Peter Bergman, who plays Jack Abbott. Mm -hmm. Without the enmity between Victor and Jack, who knows where the show would be, mm -hmm. I'm serious. Because That's it's right. the driving force, it's what gives it, or used to give it, and again, sort of sometime, but it used to give it, you know, the strength and, and the power that um, only comes about when you have an amalgam of actors that some, something works. It's hard to say what it is, but something works, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, yeah. For someone who was, didn't even know what a soap opera was, you marked your 40th anniversary as Victor in 2020 with a marvelous show that celebrated your anniversary via a celebration of the anniversary of Newman Enterprises. And so many characters, past and present, who are important to Victor were there. Big party on set. Um, so what stands out to you now when you look back at that day and what it meant to you? When you do this on a daily basis, it's, it's a kind of a grind. But then to suddenly step back and be recognized by everyone is is a wonderful feeling. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic feeling. And then the most important thing is to have had my son there and my eldest granddaughter. The others couldn't be here because they live back east. Um, was wonderful. It, 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 and Dabney Coleman was there. Uh, people had done uh, uh, Billy Zane and and people from Bold and Beautiful and and. Uh, uh, General Hospital, Maurice Bernard, and um, so many of my old friends were there, you know. Uh, Stephen A. Smith from First Take, uh, 
um, and I forget people now, but it was wonderful, really wonderful. I have to tell you, yeah. Those Earth moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, speaking of avant-set celebrations, I noticed on Twitter, Eric, that you mentioned that on your recent birthday, uh, the executive producer of the show, Tony Marina, surprised you with a speech and a very nice bottle of, of uh, Chardonnay, as I, a Mexican Chardonnay. Mexican, Mexican Chardonnay. Chardonnay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so tell us. Grown uh, in the northeast corner of Tijuana. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said on Twitter that... Uh, that is because I drink that Chardonnay. They keep a bottle for me secretly in a restaurant I go to a lot. They're not allowed to serve hard liquor. I said, call a Mexican Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it comes from. That's hilarious. <laughs> and a tip I might make use of in the future. So I, I'm very... Thanks, thank you for the, uh, for the suggestion. Yeah. So you said on Twitter that Tony's speech got to you. Yeah. What can you tell us about why, like what he said and why it got to you? Well, he is, he is um, uh, Tony says what he thinks. He just, it's, it's, he doesn't give many speeches, but I must say on two occasions I've heard him, he hits the nail on the head. He gets right to the essence of it. And it truly surprised me. I mean, it, it, I'd forgotten it was my birthday for a moment. And uh, I said, whoa, what is this? And um, so, yeah, and then when you, you know, it, it sort of overcomes you when suddenly everyone there uh, acknowledges one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a touching feeling, that's all. Well, the fact that you forgot that it was such a big milestone birthday. I mean, you turn 80. I feel like your next book should be how to look so great at 80. But, um, you know, you did mention that you lost your father at a very young age. Um, do you think that's given you a deeper appreciation for growing older and being a grandfather and all the spoils that have come with age? Yes. Yes, but I, I would think the most important thing in my life I'll tell you why, have been sports. Mm -hmm. Because they taught me from early on to keep on driving, to keep on being better. Mm -hmm. And to keep on striving. As an athlete, you never stop until you win the championship, mm -hmm. which I did both in Germany and here in America, two different sports. Track and field in Germany as a 17-year-old youth championship. And as a, as a soccer player in America with a team called the Maccabees. In 1973, we won the U.S. Open Cup, beat everyone in America. Wow. And then I was then getting too old, but I was ready to, again, try with the same team the next year. But I tried the same thing with my son. I coached his team twice to the Final Four in America. It, as an athlete, you never give up. You always, you never give up. And it's, a, it's a deep drive in me. My wife always says, she says, you know, it's exhausting to, to be with you. How can I keep up? I said, don't, don't you have to keep up. Just start walking, okay. you know. Don't do what I do. And, and she says, it's intimidating. And it's, it's, I guess it can be, because I always drive, I always work out. I work out at 10 in the evening when I come home sometimes. Doesn't make a difference. Hit the heavy back, whatever it is. So what you learn as you get older to adjust 
what do you do? I don't lift as heavy anymore. I don't run anymore. I used to run a lot of wind sprints and all that because I have a, a, a partially replaced right hip that allows me to do everything else. But running is, I don't want to put that pressure on it. Anyway, so it's just a drive, you know, to improve. And the same thing applies to this profession. I want to do it better every time. I really do. Mm-hmm. I want to do a scene better than I did last time. Unfortunately, you have to learn in this medium that you can only do it once or twice because we don't have the time. If I had my brothers, I would do a scene three, four times. I said, let's do that again. We can do that better or that. But you learn not to because you know the economic dictates of the business, you know. So the drive comes from sports, really. And mostly track and field, because I grew up in track and field, discus, javelin, and shot put, and running, but mostly those three, and you learn to improve yourself all the time. I would go out as a boy, 13, 14 years old, in the village in Germany, in the rain and snow and wind, and be out there alone on the meadow. Someone told me that recently when I visited the village. said, we used to watch you, boom, do shot put, or the discus, or the javelin, always try a little harder, a little farther. Yeah. That's great. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you uh, you made some big headlines recently, Eric, when you gave an interview to People Magazine in which you assured fans that you had no plans to retire. Uh, but if anyone missed that article, can you tell us your thoughts about the idea of retiring and why it's not, thank goodness, in your immediate plans? Uh, the word retirement is not in my vocabulary. It really is not. I'm not just saying it blithely. I mean it. No. Here. Boom. Keep on fighting. You know? Mm-hmm. Keep on doing it. And I outlive most of the bastards. <laughs> See? Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, and I'm, and I'm proud of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know how many people I've worked with? Huge names in the past who are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, some of them were older, but some of them were not, and some of them were younger. And they all thought without them, the show would not last. That's one of the greatest delusions you can have. It'll go on. Maybe not as successfully, but it'll go on. Mm-hmm. You have no idea how many actors I've met in the course of my career who thought that without them, a certain series wouldn't last. Mm-hmm. my ass that's right mm. so it's a combination of being proud of what you do fiercely protective of what you do but also modest in the sense that you know they can axe you mm-hmm. okay yep audience may not like it but they get used to it they say oh who's replacing him hmm. let's see you know mm-hmm. um I've been very lucky, very fortunate. So there are no absolutes in life. It's, it's, you know, you try to make it absolute. You try to, but you fail. There's no absolute. And you have to live with those incomplete things in life. Get used to them, you know, live with them. Well, are you touched by how much interest there is in the subject and how much of a relief it is to fans that you intend to keep playing Victor? 
it, it, I'm not saying this falsely, modestly, it surprises me. Makes me very happy though to know it. But there's part of me always that still doesn't quite believe it. You know that I, in this dressing room, I had no pictures because I didn't think I was going to stay, literally. Until we did the 40th anniversary on the show and the art director had devised this wonderful art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, shit. <laughs> no, hang it in the dressing room. And we did. They hung it up for me. So I feel embarrassed now when people sit opposite me. Under, I'm sitting under this big picture of mine. <laughs> this is so fucking self-serving. It's obnoxious. <laughs> but it looks pretty good, though. Sure, the, it does. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Now, uh, over the years, a lot of story has come out of Victor's status as the patriarch of the Newman family and his relationships with his children. And we know from speaking with the actors who play your children on the show, uh, how truly and genuinely fond they are of you. But we would love to hear your thoughts about them. So what do you have to say about working with Joshua Morrow, who plays Nick, for starters? Joshua Morrow has a a dangerous sense of humor. That means we sometimes, you know, sort of, today, for example, we did a scene where we barely got by without laughing. He's a, he's a wonderful character. He has that, he has that sort of all-American, he's from Oklahoma, sort of slightly shit-kicking attitude. He's very bright. I know that by how quickly he learns lines. That son of a bitch learns lines very quickly. Almost never misses a beat. But it's always this, oh, shucks attitude, you know, well, you know. And I make fun of it. I said, you're from Oklahoma, what the hell do you know? <laughs> so, so, wonderful character. Mm-hmm. Great family man, great father. He's a good man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, very important to our show. Very. And uh, what about Amelia Heinley, who plays Victoria? I adore Amelia. I adore her. I adore her. And, and just simple as it is, I adore her. She is a very good actress. So is Joshua. Um, they did a very good job when they cast her. I adore her. Yeah. Again, great sense of humor, you know. Goes a long way. What about Melissa Ordway, who plays Abby? Melissa, I ha- almost have to use the same words. I adore her. Mm-hmm. She she has a great sense of humor. She laughs all the time. Very charming. Obviously, both girls are very pretty. And um, I mean, what can I tell you? It's it's lucky. Mm-hmm. Very lucky to have all my children be actors that I really love working with, you know? Mm-hmm. She's very good, by the way, as well. Yes. Very natural. And, and so, is, so is Joshua and so is Amelia. They're very real actors. I love that. Um, now, speaking of Victor as a father, YNR has a special episode plan that will focus on the relationship between Adam and Victor. Um, yes. Now, that relationship has driven so much story over the years, and you've had such a rich on-screen dynamic with a variety of actors in that role. So, as the actor bringing Victor to life, what is it that you find interesting about playing out the different dimensions of that relationship? Well, let me tell you something. It's, it's um, Obviously, it's a very fraught relationship. Um, but it creates interesting conflict, interesting drama. 
um, almost all the actors who have played the role have been damn good. That includes Michael Mooney, who's very good. Mark Grossman, when he came onto the show, they burdened him with so much damn dialogue that I read the script and I said, how the hell can they give that to someone who comes on new on the show? I mean, and he did a fantastic job. Fantastic job. He handled it every day like an absolute pro, which he is. He's very good. Okay. Very good. He has an edge to him. And again, very lucky to have him. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when you filmed this special episode recently, we're not going to ask you what happens, but I'm curious to know what your experience was that day at work, if anything stands out to you about filming it. Again, one doesn't quite know what the director is doing with it, what they did with it pictorially. Um, I'm sure it had interesting effects and mm -hmm. sound effects and all that. And um, that is one of those things you need to see when it's completed to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, now, I find that First of all, anyone I ever say that I work at the magazine, really probably the first question I get is, do you know Victor Newman or have you met Eric Braden? Like, yes. without a doubt. Same here. Um, so when we've had people on the podcast or in the magazine, they tell stories about you. I'm sorry. Charge them for it. <laughs> I will. I would be very rich. We, we, we shouldn't. I missed the boat there. Um, but we recently had Richard Berge on the podcast, and he told us that when he met you, you were quoting his Seinfeld episode to him. So tell us about meeting him and working with him. Well, uh, the nicest man and a man's man. And I remember my wife and I watch Seinfeld every night. The last thing I do before I go to sleep. Imagine that. I've seen shows over and over again. He played the doctor in one of the scenes when they go to the Hamptons and they all have dinner together and the lady of the house wants to show off a new baby. She goes, oh, my baby, look at the... And they all say, oh, look at the baby, the baby. They all bore to tears with it. <laughs> the doctor comes in, Richard Berkey, says, this is a baby, and he says some nice things about... Then he goes later on out of the balcony with, with uh, Elaine, and she's attracted to him, and, but he repeats the same endearing words he said about the baby to her, so she really <laughs> loses interest. Anyway, I, never, I remember seeing that. It's, it's, the most, it's the most brilliant show. I can't talk enough about it. I love that you're a Seinfeld super fan, the way that people are Victor super fans. Yes. Um, so wait, this is on a very different note, but there's something I've always wanted to know your opinion on. Uh, I recently spoke to Stephen A. Smith uh, on the occasion of the launch of his new show. Mm -hmm. And you and Maurice Bernard were both guests in its debut week. Um, but when it came, comes down to it, Eric, if there was some sort of dramatic showdown between Victor Newman and Sonny Corinthos, who do you think would prevail? Well, who do you think? <laughs> <laughs> we know. <laughs> Does it even need a response? Enough said. Okay. It is well, rhetorical to enough. <laughs> Maurice, by the way, is a very nice man. Very nice guy. Very good colleague. And I've respected his work for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
I know he feels the same, absolutely. When am I, come on. Right, please. Victor's got it in the bag. Um, <laughs> now, you're very active on social media. Um, you know, you tweet a lot and you share photos. You know, can you talk about your experience of being on social media and interacting with the fans as you do? I don't have any hesitancy doing it because I genuinely like the audience. I genuinely like the fans that I meet. I think it's enormously courageous of them to come up and to open up dialogue and to talk. It interests me what they do. I've seen actors who shy away from that and who have sort of become paranoid and just put yourself one of the most important things in life is to, is to really imagine yourself in the shoes of whoever you are judging. Mm -hmm. So if I now were to meet Michael Richards, Cosmo Kramer, I, I would sort of almost be hesitant to go up and say, man, I love your shit. You're just unbelievable. You're the best. I, I, you're one of the best actors I've ever, ever seen. Well, how do you, you know, so... I try to take the edge off when people meet me and try to talk to them and ask them about what they do. I know what I do, they know what I do, but I'm interested in what they do. So on Twitter, obviously a lot of this goes into politics as well. You know, I'm, I'm a conscious human being who obviously has an enormous interest in what goes on politically and historically in the world. And uh, so sometimes I cannot help but say certain things, especially about, let's not get into it. So it, it's, it's, and I know that when you do that, as Stephen A knows, by the way, way, he says, bring on the haters, because he knows at least they watch. Well, I, I'm not there yet. I don't want to bring on the haters. I know my nature is to talk to people bullshit with them and then you can smooth out all kinds of edges. I have empathy with people in all walks of life. I've been there, close to it. Or a lot of the time, uh, there are actors who are huge stars in the daytime universe, but in the mainstream of popular culture, people haven't heard of them. But I, I think your stories well prove that Eric Braden and Victor Newman are quite the exception to that. You know, you're both very recognizable and respected. Do you take pride in making that kind of impact and having uh, that kind of reputation? I, I take pride in, in, in just what you have said just now. Uh, thank you. And, I, I, and I'm, again, not falsely modest. I forget about it. I really do. I, I forget about that. Because I truly believe, again, that comes from the world of sports, don't rest on your laurels. Mm -hmm. You're only as good as your last performance. You're only as good as the last performance you gave here. But if there's a lasting impact, when that happens and people talk about it, that's very moving. But I don't trust it. I don't trust it to last. you got to keep on, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's so deep inside of me. Yeah. One of the most moving times was to receive the uh, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Loved every moment of it, but I didn't trust it. You know, he said, no, come on, keep on doing it, keep on doing it, right. keep on improving, keep on competing. It's so deep within me. 
Mm -hmm. I grew up with three brothers. We fought for everything. Then I grew up in sports. Then I came here with 50 bucks in my pocket, knew no one except a cousin in Texas. You know what my first job was? No. My first job after taking the Greyhound bus from New York all the way down to Texas in the summer, 1959, during the height of segregation. And I get to Galveston, Texas, where my cousin, very bright lady from Hamburg, Germany, who had left Germany in the early 50s. She was a doctor of oncology and radiology. And my first job when I got there, the next morning, to help a colleague of hers who did research on arthritis to go to the cadaver hall and open up knee joints of cadavers. That was my first job in America. Wow. That's so crazy. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. <laughs> the next one was a cowboy in Montana. <laughs> to make, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on the other jobs you had before you became an actor. <laughs> Let me tell you about the cowboy stint in Montana. Okay. I grew up reading about American West. You know, as boys in Germany, we grew up romanticizing the American West. Cowboys and Indians, oh my God. And I came to work on that ranch near Missoula. And I grew up in the countryside, so I was used to tough work. But sitting on a horse for eight hours a day ain't romance. The romance goes right out of your rear end. <laughs> Not so much when you get off the bloody horse. Anyway, long story short, I met, it so happens, I do, met a girl at a, what actually was it? It was a, where a lot of ranchers met and they had a, some festival or whatever. And she was the daughter of the neighborhood rancher. And she and I began to flirt and said, okay, um, we had a date for the next week. At a certain point between the two ranches. And I asked the foreman if I could borrow a horse that night. She said, all right, okay. So I rode to that point. She rode the other way and we met in the middle. And she very sweetly brought a blanket and all that. And, you know, and uh, literally was under the moonlight, starlight, beautiful. And suddenly, the two horses began to nigh. And she says, be very careful, look around carefully. It was a brown bear. Oh my God. We smelled the food. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> well, that was Curtis Interruptus. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> Very dramatic, indeed. I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. Anyway. <laughs> well, when you started on Young and Restless in 1980, the intention was for the character to be short-term. So do you ever wonder how life might have been different if the original plan had stuck and you'd been in and out that quickly instead of having this remarkable 40-plus year run? That's a very good question again. You know, that's, that's a very good question. I cannot gloss over it because... It would have meant, I worked more as a guest star than almost any other actor on various shows, but I had really reached a point where I was tired of it. And uh, some people had told me not to do television at all, but to only star in films. And after I did Colossus, the Portman Project, a film I starred in, 
at Universal Studios. I said, well, I got a family to feed. My son was born, 1970. And I don't know, to be frank with you, I honestly don't know. That's a very good question. But my family came first. I don't know. I don't know. I've always wanted to write. Never had the guts to do so. And knowing now what my son goes through as a writer, um, some of me would have liked it. I have enormous respect for writers. Mm -hmm. I think writing is arguably the hardest job in our profession. I mean it. Mm -hmm. He sits there usually until early in the morning. And I think writing for a soap is so damn hard. It must be so hard. How do you come up with new ideas? Right. For a character that's been doing this for 44 to 41 years. Mm -hmm. How do you renew Victor and Nikki's romance? Well, now you depend on the actors doing it. That's why I always insist when I talk to other actors that you play stuff in between. You know, when I see Ashley, for example, I, I'm reminded of an early romance. Mm -hmm. And so the writers don't think of that, but we actors have to fill those scenes with moments of looking at her and saying, you know, it could still happen. You understand? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's what, and it could. So love is a many splendid thing. Mm -hmm. Indeed. 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 What? It's going to be very hard for us to say goodbye because this has been such a enjoyable and wonderful conversation. Well, um, same, same to both of you. I well, love it. Okay? Thank you so much. Well, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to say directly to the YNR viewers who are listening and who have been uh, such huge fans of yours and of your work through these 41 plus years? I'm grateful to every viewer. I am genuinely grateful because for one very simple fact, our ratings assure us that we have a job. So, and I'm very grateful to all the expressions of, well, of love, you know, that come from a lot of people, a lot of corners of this world every nook and cranny in America, in Canada. Uh, my God, all the countries the show plays in, I'm deeply grateful and will not leave you. Thank you. This has been just the most delightful chat and I hope we get to do it again someday soon. And we thank you for all your time today, Eric. Yes. Both of you. Okay, and when you, when you come to town, let's have lunch or whatever, okay? It's a date. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Eric Braden for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.